0: You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever ever be here Okay, free the Black Panthers, FTBP Stand for free the Black Panthers, It's up the black police Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles But we still here, in the bill here, up Cointel Pro Show. They got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa Khalid Muhammad. we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me, i Free the Black Panthers, F-E-B-P, stand for Free the Black Panthers, It's up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free, okay, Free the Black Panthers, FCBP stand for Free the Black Panthers, It's fuck the Black Police Fair infiltrated our movement, from black leadership roads. But we still here, in the bill here, upcoin pro. RBG, 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 RBG My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory Black women, regardless, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny Poets that don't tolerate it Melanated, so you gotta hate it Barack, up another conversation Trump going to get inaugurated Damn, unify
1: or die, NBPP.org First and foremost, the
2: new Black Panther Party We have a a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prison. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community. And it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison. The 13th Amendment said you cannot be made a slave or indentured servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
3: probably get a better response to it than if you try to make it an all-or-nothing thing, particularly at this point in time when tensions are so hot. Uh, and we know what the movement intentions had been. Um, the governorship in uh, Virginia essentially was a shocker. And what was it about? It was about educational takeover on the one hand, and some of it was surely about what people thought to be the excesses of all the 1619 projects and so forth. So decentralization I'm in favor of. And the reason I'm in favor of it is you get more coherent communities, you get more of them, and you don't have to have a national debate, which could quickly degenerate into a national brawl if you're not
4: careful. Gotcha, you. So, Mr. F.J., what do you say to those black Americans who, who feel like, you know, in, in their heart of hearts, you know, um, that a, a debt, you know, it, it is, is there and they're still feeling uh, some of the trickle-down effects? Uh, we're talking about years and years and years later. What do you say to those people? Do you say – I'm sorry, good luck in the future, how do you reconcile that?
3: Well, as I told you, what I said is I think the greatest problem with respect to much of black promise has been programs which were designed to create assistance. Um, I was very clear about that. I mean, you get rid of a minimum wage law, which has disparate impacts upon black individuals, you're doing an enormous good. And so if you start looking at the patterns of regulation that have started to take place, whether you're talking about zoning or whether you're talking about labor markets, whether you're talking about missions into medical schools, they're all barriers to entry. So the first thing you want to do in any situation is get rid of the barriers, and then what you do is you see open up. Now, on the other hand, there's something else that goes on. There are a lot of foundations in the United States, a lot of universities and so forth. Many of them have programs which are designed to deal with this kind of rectification. I am completely in favor of any private group that wants to do this, being able to do it, because I think when you do it on a voluntary side, you avoid all the political risks. Uh, so if you then start to go and put all of this stuff together, what happens is you're going to say, look, I mean, there are many things that have gone wrong, but the things are going to be better for you now than they've ever been before. And, oh, by the way, uh, you should also understand uh, that, you know, 100 years ago, some of the problems we see with black families and illegitimacies did not exist. You have to explain why it is, and you can't blame it on slavery. What you have to do is to figure out what particular rules, whether they be welfare rules or family support rules and so forth, uh, that cause this stuff. That requires you looking very closely at things, and I'm all in favor of doing that stuff. But I think, in effect, a national program which starts to say that you have to pay through Congress is too risky under these circumstances because the people are going to have to pay the practice of going to say, why me now? All the other cases can be distinguished on the grounds they paid it to direct victims at the time of the wrong, and this is going to be very different. Uh, Systematic racism doesn't cut it as a discrete source, and slavery is simply too far back.
4: Uh, Mr. Ray, I want to go to you now. When we talk about asking for money, that's the easy part, asking. The hard part is figuring out where this money comes from. Uh, According to William Darity, a Duke University professor, of Economics and Public Policy. He also studies reparations. Uh, he thinks it's going to cost an upward amount of $12 trillion or roughly $800,000 per eligible family. How, where do we get that money? How do we pay for this? And number two, how do we determine who's eligible and what system is going to be in place to make sure that that is done right?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, these are the two two of the central questions. Let me answer them. I've thought about it a lot, done a lot of research on it, done work with Dr. Sandy Darity. And so part of thinking about this, this first question is, uh, who should pay? Where should the money come from? As I said earlier, federal land is the answer. Some Republicans actually support this idea. It's right in line with conservative principles. Over 2 billion acres of land in the United States is federal land. That's 25%. As I mentioned earlier, you can do a lot of things with that land. You can lease it. You can sell it. But accordingly, that is right in line with the 40 acres in a mule, right in line with it. This means that if we think about that $12 trillion that Sandy Dairy and uh, Kirsten Mullins laid out, his wife, this means that 480 million of the 2 billion acres of land could be sold or auctioned off to cover these costs. The land could then be leased to cover wealth-building solutions that include, again, as I've mentioned, wealth-building strategies, tuition remission, mortgage down payments, and revitalization. The legacy of Forty is and a Mule suggests federal land is the pathway forward. Again, immediately following the Civil War, General Sherman was highly in favor of reparations by using land to do it. And I think we have to think about it in that context. It's also important when we think about land is we have to talk about the Homestead Act. See, the Homestead Act, think about people – when, when you watch Wild Wild West movies. I used to watch Wild Wild West movies with my granddaddy all the time. I used to wonder why people were just in the middle of nowhere creating, creating towns. Well, the reason why that was happening is because Homestead Act money allowed people to head west and claim land. That land was originally for freed black people. That was wrapped up with the Freedmen's Bureau where black people were supposed to put their money together to build wealth. And as they did that, black people went to places like Tulsa. Not only did places like Tulsa get burned down and lose all their wealth, but highways on I-40 heading from east to west straight through Texas, like it goes through Tennessee and other states, demolished black cities from Little Rock to North Nashville. Part of thinking about that is that was wealth that was built up. That Homestead Act land was originally for black people. Let me quickly address the other question of who should qualify. How should we think about this? Well, look, here it goes. Um, one key question is thinking about who should be included. In short, a black person, and Dr. Sandy Darity says this as well, a black person who can trace their heritage to people enslaved in the United States should be eligible for financial compensation for slavery. Meanwhile, black people who can show that they were excluded from various policies after emancipation, such as redlining and segregation, should also seek reparations. But we have to be clear those are two different things, and we're seeing a lot of movement with Greenbelt and Detroit and Evanston around housing, which is different from slavery. So let me give some specifics. A person like Senator Cory Booker, whose parents are descendants of slaves from Sierra Leone, would qualify for reparations, whereas uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, whose father is from Jamaica and mother is from India, would not qualify. That just gives an example of how that plays out. Now, let's go to President Barack Obama. He would not qualify. He has a Kenyan uh, father and a white mother. But his wife from the south side of Chicago, Michelle Robinson Obama, would. To determine qualifications, birth records can be used to trace this through census tract documents. One thing that slaves, that, that uh, slave owners did, they had good records and they had good documents. People's names are listed. People are able to track that information. I want to quickly say one more thing about what Professor Epstein said. First, he admits that a debt is owed. Bottom line, is what we're talking about here, is, is a debt owed. Did note that he agrees that it could happen in the private sector, not in the public sector. It's important for people to make that distinction. We agree on that part, the private sector. Where we disagree is what the public sector should do in terms of the federal government, and I think that's where it should happen. The final thing is, I'm actually confused by the argument that he makes that we should continue to remove barriers. Because when I hear that, These are these words we hear. What do you call those barriers? I call them processes of systemic racism baked into social institutions. That's what that word means, barriers. Final point I want to make is programs about welfare. People always like to talk about welfare and act like black people are the only ones on it. When you look at welfare, 36% of welfare welfare recipients are white. 25% are black. So while black people are overrepresented in terms of percentage-wise, there's a much larger number of white people who are on welfare. We have to stop using that argument and act like black people are the only ones living in poor areas. So I think these are the points that need to be made when we talk about where the money comes from and who qualifies. This is why commissions are set up. These these questions are answerable with scientific research that can answer these
4: important questions on how we move forward. Mr. Ray, I want to go back to when you talk about who's eligible. What about African Americans who arrive here in the U.S., After slavery, but lived under Jim Crow.
1: When it comes to slavery, they wouldn't qualify when it comes to slavery because they're not descendants of slavery in the United States. Now, if they come from a Caribbean island where they were colonized or enslaved oftentimes by European countries, like we're starting to see movement there in countries in the Caribbean, then they definitely have a claim to make. That claim is not directly with the United States. That claim is with a European country. Similarly to the way that Germany paid out reparations for Jewish Americans, it's the same way that the United States has to pay out for reparations for slavery. The Holocaust happened in Germany. Germany pays. Slavery happened in the United States. The United States should pay it. So part of thinking about that is that process. The other thing that's important is even though we know that, that Native Americans have not received they're just due for what happened. But the reparations that have came through, a lot of that came through after people had been long and gone, generations later. So when we make this argument that, there had, that, that reparations has always gone to people who are living, that's just not true. Like, And reparations doesn't solely have to be about individual cash payments. Again, it can be in other forms. But this is part of what commissions will do. They will figure that out. But when it comes to housing, we know emphatically that redlining – has had a huge impact on wealth for black people. And part of thinking about that is similar to what Evanston is doing, similar to what Detroit, Michigan is doing, similar to what Greenbelt, Maryland is about to do. They understand that housing segregation contributes to the, racial, the, race, the, 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 the race wealth gap in the United States, and that deserves its own atonement where people who came to the United States after that might actually qualify.
4: We've got about 30 minutes left here in this uh, great debate. I want to go to Mr. Epstein. We have questions coming in from some of our audience members. This question is for you, Mr. Epstein. Reparations represent a general policy policy solution for a broad solution or a broad problem that has accumulated over hundreds of years. As Dr. Ray says, a debt owed. So I wonder if your individualistic notion of responsibility doesn't miss the point aren't reparations an attempt to make up for a general wrong, regardless of who exactly caused it? Mr. Epstein, your
3: answer. Well, it certainly is an effort to do that, but I think, in effect, it's a dangerous effort to try and do it. Let's go back, in effect, and start with the number that was given, right? $12 trillion, $8 trillion, $800,000 for family. Uh, What you're saying, in effect, is that the debt of slavery is so sufficiently large that the average Black person who's entitled to get this money will become, therefore, far wealthier than any white person um, who is going to have to live, particularly after you take these taxes out by part of the situation. Uh, The numbers here are completely wrong. Uh, So if you want to talk about this, then go back and think again about the Japanese situation. It was 1988. This is 40-odd years after all this terrible thing happened. The figures were $20,000, which, if you then take it back in terms of a discounted situation, is a tiny fraction. Reparations then were thought to be an important symbolic situation. And so what you're doing here is you're trying to do this debt and to calculate it in a monetized fashion. You get numbers which are simply unsustainable relative to the problem. Um, if you want to deal with some kinds of situations, I have no objections against somebody trying to acknowledge that slavery was wrong. There are lots of other things that were wrong as well. But what I do think, in effect, is that it's wrong to assume that everybody who is an eight-generation descendant from slavery is entitled to claim this debt. Um, uh, Professor Ray mentioned throughout this talk that, you know, what the Barack Obama is going to do. Uh, But if you start taking people who have multiple origins, and they're one-fourth Black and three-eighths Asian, or whatever it turns out to be, then these numbers become absolutely arbitrary. And it turns out that if you're trying to do this, two things happen. One is you don't know which entitlements are given to whom, and it's also clear that there is no benefit that descended to other individuals which you could turn back to them. The cases for reparations are most powerful if somebody gets money and there's a stash of wealth that they've taken from somebody else, and then you ask them to give it back to them. But if somebody takes the money, dissipates it, and nothing is left, and you're going to charge his descendants the full cost of this particular debt when, in fact, they've derived nothing from it, That is not under individual principles attractive, and it's not attractive as a public matter, because what it does is it inflates these deaths beyond recognition. So suppose somebody came forward and said, okay, what we'll do is we'll pay every person $10,000. That's very different from $800,000. I'm not in favor of doing this, because I think when the sums get that small, it's not worth the calculation. But when they get as large as you're talking about, there will be a firestorm of resistance to ask people who are essentially going to be poorer than the folks who get the money uh, to sacrifice and to pay taxes under this circumstance. As to the public land solution, that land belongs to everybody. And you could also sell it off and put the money into the public treasury. There's no reason why any one group has a priority to it if they don't have direct claims against other individuals. This is just asking for too much, and one has to try to figure out how to temper it down And I think when you look at all the confusions that are going to take place, these smaller decentralized programs are going to be much more effective. Put that number on the table, and there will be an incredible brawl that will happen. It is not going to be achieved. What you will do is create more animosity and very little by way of transfer. And that leads us to our next
4: question to you, Mr. Ray, from one of our audience members, who says, how important are direct payments to the descendants of slavery versus social programs to help African Americans?
1: It's a great question. So I think it's an and versus an or. Uh, One of the things that uh, my colleague, Dr. Andre Perry, and I have argued for are social programs, essentially a 21st century New Deal that focuses on the pathways to wealth, education, housing, and home and business ownership. The key areas where we know that inequality exists. So part of what it will look like is In education, it would be tuition payments. It would be repayments of student loans. We know that black people are more likely to carry student loan debt, not because they're not good with their money, but actually because they're more likely to get subprime loans. Accordingly, there was a recent study that came out looking at graduates of historically black colleges and universities. So for all those people in Texas that go to Texas Southern or go to some of these other universities, and you need to look at, what your what your student loans will look like and whether or not you have subsidized or unsubsidized loans, what your interest rates were. This money adds up. We know when it comes to housing, when it comes to redlining, we know that the difference between, say, paying 4% or 5% loan over a 30-year loan on, say, a $600,000 home could accumulate to over $100,000. That's somebody sending their kid to University of Texas uh, to go to college. So we know that these things are set up when it comes to business ownership. I talked about that. So focusing on those key gateways is essential in terms of grants. We have to remember, and this gets back, uh, Chauncey, to your question about housing. Around the time when housing inequality was happening with redlining, what was also happening was that Black people were excluded from certain wealth-building opportunities as it related to grants for going to school and also grants for starting up small businesses. See, one of the reasons why so many HBCUs exist today is because when those Black veterans returned from war, they couldn't go to University of Maryland. They couldn't go to university of Texas. That's why those HBCUs are right down the road from these large universities. So part of thinking about that is really important to know. The other thing that's important to note is that let's just think about some numbers, because people always throw out numbers. If, If we look at the recent COVID bailout, that's $4 trillion. $4 trillion that was paid out. The United States had no problem finding that money, and nobody complained about it either. It's interesting how we only complain that things are too much, or that is too much going on when it comes to black people. The other point is Japanese internment was was four years. And we can't trivialize it. Like We can't say only four years because they were interned illegally for four years. When we talk about black people, though, slavery was nearly 250 years, and then there was roughly 80 years of Jim Crow. When we talk about the Holocaust, it was an acute 12-year period. So when we start putting this in its totality and we talk about the gravity of it, We're talking about centuries versus a decade or less, and it's important for people to put that in the proper
4: context. We still are here in round four taking audience questions, but I want to go back because Mr. Epstein said something that was quite glaring, and this is a a response for you, Mr. Ray, because if, if, if the goal here is to right the wrong and try to move forward, what do you have to say about Mr. Epstein's point that reparations will cause white resentment and make race relations even worse. White
1: resentment already exists. And, and part of thinking about it is that people who benefit from unearned assets oftentimes resist change to make it equitable. That's just a simple bottom line. You know, progress has never came from people saying we want it to happen. Progress has come from black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people, Native Americans, all Americans coming together saying this is the right thing to do. And we are at this moment in time where when we talk about reparations, something that we haven't talked about, but it's very, very important because, well, actually, it came up slightly. Uh, Professor Professor Epstein mentioned it slightly talking about Virginia and didn't use the word uh, critical race theory, but was referring to that as kind of this boogeyman that that people talk about. Um, and, And not to put us on a tangent, but the point here is that reparations also has to include restorative justice. That means painting an accurate portrayal of history. See, part of the reason why I laid out some of the history at that beginning is because I guarantee you I said things that people had never heard before. Wasn't taught in school in Texas, wasn't taught in school in Tennessee where I grew up at, not being taught in the other places where I've lived either. And part of thinking about that, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And so part of thinking about that is when we get on the same page in the same book about our American history, Oftentimes, we come to similar conclusions about how to move forward. For example, 40% of young people, young people considered, say, 18 to mid-30s, 40% of them favor reparations in 2016. It is an even higher percentage today. And when we look at places like Greenbelt, which has a large white population that voted for this commission, when we look at places like Asheville, when we go up to Rhode Island, that is one of the whitest states in the, in the United States of America.
3: got money, which they did, they made the rest of the country poor by wrecking labor markets through forced labor. If this were a case of simply trying to find children and to get them back, every single theory of restitution says that if you receive a grant from somebody who's taken property wrongly, you are obliged to give it back even though need. The reason why this problem is very, very difficult is that it turns out that there are no descended assets. And so what you can do is to say that what we're just doing is taking something that you shouldn't
5: have.
3: Uh, all the money, and if you tried to do this to say to many people, who are going to have to have a very heavy tax. that these things you're talking about, uh, you're talking about 100000 in taxes on a person. That's the kind of number that's being put out here per person to pay. Um, just, the, the world is going to blow up. There's going to be no way that that can be done. Then the question is learn about history. Well, I disagree with much of what Professor Ray says about the particular history, and in particular, I think that it would be just very wrong to use the 1619 curriculum to describe what's going on, because the history is much more cross-current. To make the claim that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were designed to preserve slavery ignores the fact that basically the time these things were done, northern states abolished it. When it came to the question of the Northwest Territory in 1786, slavery was abolished and prohibited from going there. Uh, Terrible things happened after the um, Missouri Compromise and so forth. I'm in favor of teaching all of that particular stuff. uh, But I don't think what you can do is to teach it as a history which says all sins were done by one group to another group. I think what you have to do is to understand uh, that there were many things that were terrible and many things that were started to be heroic. And when you start putting that jumble on the table, What happens is it doesn't translate into the kinds of numbers that are being proposed as a starting point for negotiation. Uh, $800,000 per person in a country which is roiling in debt, where we can't even find the kind of money that you need to pay for the so-called infrastructure program, this is just a non-starter. And in terms of education, there are many disadvantaged people from Appalachia and so forth who have been on the wrong end of a lot of sticks for a very long period of time. You can have a race-blind program that can do much of this stuff. You do it on a more modest labor, but you would do it without creating the political rancor that's sure to follow if you try to make this into a payment system at the magnitude that's been suggested.
4: All right. Thank you. All right, gentlemen, we are going to call this the lightning round. I got a few questions from our audience members, so if you can give me 30-second answers. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Epstein. Yes, uh, this question right here is from one of our audience members who says, You make the case that free markets will do more to help African-Americans than reparations, but couldn't you still have some sort of market-orientation reparation like housing or education vouchers? 30 seconds.
3: Uh, uh, Vouchers are generally a pretty good way to do things because they don't get you involved in specific situations, so I'm in favor of that. The question, though, is why should the class of vouchers only go to some individuals who suffered misfortune as opposed to doing it for others? And one of the things, for example, is that if you actually look at the current politics in the United States. Vouchers are opposed by unions. And it seems to me that what we really want to do is to break the public school monopoly. And if we had a voucher program, it would work. In New York City, where we have these programs, huge percentage of the students in the Success Academy, for example, are minority origin, and they do perfectly well. That system could really work, so I'm very strongly in favor of it.
4: And we'll go to Mr. Array. This question is for you. How do we have a forward-moving conversation about reparations, monetary and others, when people want to move past history? How would monetary reparations cure the ills or heal the wounds of racism, or is it really just a matter of making up for inequalities?
1: Well, I think when it comes to to the monetary value, it's about the, the wrong. And dealing with that, and again, when we talk about the money, we we can put a financial value on it, like the the physical bodies of slaves was valued at $3 billion in 1860. Accordingly, it it becomes important to think about this, that slavery also had a second name known as convict leasing. And when you start talking about states playing a role in this in Alabama, 75% of Alabama state revenue at the turn going into the 20th century, 75% came from convict leasing. Let's fast forward to today. Whether well, this part of this $4 trillion in COVID money going to Alabama is being used to put up new prisons. Who are, who's going to probably be in those prisons? other are going to be black people that's dealing with some of the issues that we're talking about. The other part of this, though, is that the reparations package isn't solely about finances. It's also about restorative justice. Part of restorative justice is about ensuring that all of us get exposed to the proper history in the United States. Uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee has a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The state of California does as well. People should look there because I think that is how we heal. Because right now, what's happening is the United States has an open wound that's never healed. Think about an injury you had or a cut that you never let heal. You never put Neosporin on it. Um, You never did what you were supposed to do to make it heal, And now it needs surgery. And part of that surgery means it's going to take a little bit longer to heal because you need surgery. That's where we are in the United States. If we don't heal this wound, it will just keep getting wider.
4: Gotcha. All right, we've got about uh, 12 minutes left. We want to try to find some common ground here. Our audience members are asking for it. So this question is for both Mr. Epstein and also Mr. Ray. Is there (coughs) some common ground between the debaters here? Could you both agree to something like special housing credits or student loan forgiveness for African-Americans, under the name reparations, is there any common ground from both of you all on this? I want to start with you, Professor Epstein. One minute.
3: Well, I, I think the answer is I'm not in favor generally of forgiveness of student loans, uh, certainly on a broad basis, because what happens is that many of those benefits go to the most privileged individuals, and it creates a kind of vertical inequity. Many people got their loans and paid them off in full. Now you're going to get another generation of people. And they don't have to pay them at all. Uh, So I think that this is kind of tricky. What I am in favor of, as I mentioned, is a program that breaks the public monopoly and allows people to get vouchers, regardless of race, so as to use them. It turns out in these particular programs, there are huge numbers of minority participants in them. And I think if you do this on a race-neutral basis, you're going to get the disparate impact you like without having the particular problem that you start to face. In general, I'm not in favor of housing things. I've before. I think the greatest thing that you can do is to provide basic security against crime and there's huge black-on-black crime that has to be dealt with, and I think that's there. And otherwise, what you try to do is to get more people in there uh, so that what happens is the supply of housing increases, the cost of housing goes down, and the situation will better. You want to talk about a terrible program in terms of racial discrimination, try rent control in New York City with virtually all the privileged people who get these huge subsidies turn out to be white people of privilege who got them back in the nineteen forties. I'm not in favor of keeping those things. I think you gotta transition out. And so always deregulate first before you get positive wealth transfers. All right, Mr. Ray.
1: Well I mean I, I guess I'm I'm unsure how much how much uh we, we connected there. I mean again I, I know that Professor Epstein does agree that things can happen in the private sector. And I definitely think that's the case. I think it's a few things, though, for people to note on this point that I think is is important to respond to. First thing is that when it comes to, to vouchers that will be for everyone, that's no different from a whole bunch of other programs that's been done, where black people and people who know that a wrong has been done and needs to be atoned for, including the large number of white people who are pushing for this, that oftentimes when these benefits come down, they come down on the backs of black people. This is Another example that Professor Epstein actually highlighted, which is that, oh, well, everyone should be able to get these vouchers, even though they should probably be exclusively for black people. We're not going to do that. When it comes to affirmative action, what's interesting there is that affirmative action has benefited women just as much as it has black people. And affirmative action expands to not just include gender and race, but to think about religious discrimination, particularly for Jewish Americans as they deal with, as they continue to experience hate crimes and also disability. Two other quick points. First is related to black-on-black crime. That's a statement we hear all the time. Ninety-four percent of black people are killed by other black people. Ninety-four percent. But you know what's interesting about that? Eighty-six percent of white people are killed by other white people, and we never say white-on-white crime. Why is it that it's black-on-black crime? Crime should just be crime. We should want to solve it. But the reason why we're able to say black-on-black crime and we don't say white-on-white crime, even though crime is intra-racial is because that speaks to housing segregation. People oftentimes commit crimes by people they're exposed to, by people who they see. The reason why most black people end up killing other black people is because they live next door to them. The reason why 86% of white people kill other white people is because they live next door to them. There are only 2%, 2% of census tracts. Census tracts are really small. They're much smaller than zip codes. Only 2% of census tracts have a similar percentage of whites, Latinos, Asians, and black people who have a similar level of education and income, only 2% in the entire United States. The final point here is about policing. There, if we want to deal with policing, there's a key statistic that we should all want to solve. Black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking and don't have a weapon. 3.5 times more likely. We're not talking about people who are attacking. We're not talking about people who had a weapon. Who said that? Police themselves. There are some key statistics and tons of research out there that show these disparities if we actually want to uh, approach them head on and do something about it.
4: Gotcha. All right. As we close here, I want to give each of you all two minutes here uh, for a closing statement on your side. This has been a great conversation, and you all have done so uh, well with making and bringing your points home. I want to start with you, Mr. Epstein. You have two minutes here in your closing statement.
3: Well, the situation in the United States is extraordinarily complex. And there are many things that we do today that are unrelated to race formally, but which have enormous disparate impact on the way in which these things go. I'm interested in trying to find a way in which we can improve the lot of all Americans by trying to have programs that are not divisive in the way in which they are put together. Deregulation in many cases do that. Programs like vouchers will do that. Uh, Improved police protection will do that. Uh, Professor Ray is surely right when he says there's white on white crime and black on black crime. What is missed from that is that the rate of crime on black and black as a percentage of population is far, far higher than it is on the other side. And so when you start to see people calling for the relaxation of police enforcement, it's going to result in a much higher increase in black on black crime than it is on white on white crime. And what you therefore have to do under these circumstances is to figure out how it is you get equitable enforcement to make sure that these things do not happen. It's also absolutely critical to try to have educational opportunities for everybody. And in these particular circumstances, getting rid of the public school monopoly, I think, is much more to the point. If you start looking, for example, at the performances in the Success Academy that I referred to, here are kids in the worst of these schools that imagine come from the family. They have scores that are comparable to those of the kids who live in Scarsdale, New York, and upper middle class factor. And my son worked in these schools, and one of the things they start to say is the last thing we care about when we teach our children is whether or not they're all black or white or some mix between them. We think that we're trying to improve their kids, and if we give them the right environment, it doesn't matter whom they sit next to. We've got to be able to do it. So I'm in favor of trying to do each and every one of these things. What I do not think is going to be appropriate is to put an enormous number on the table to what you think to be inherited by simply taking a situation where you figure out what the loss was and then compound it by interest in 150 years and try to give it to the descendants. One has never been able to do that formula anywhere else. You should not try to do it here. So if you're gonna to try to play the reparations situation, I'm certainly going to see that people are gonna try it. I'm not saying you can't do it. I think what you really have to do is to start with a much more realistic assessment. And if you start thinking about the Japanese numbers being a sign of a combination of a little compensation and a lot of symbolic stuff, you're going to get a lot farther. You may do this in local situations, but if you could talk about a billion people or two million people are on these commissions, you have to worry about nationally that there are probably thousands and thousands of communities that are not prepared to entertain this. And that if you start to put this globally, they're going to kill it all off at the national level. You're not going to get success with the kinds of numbers you've had. What we have to do is to essentially try to deregulate the health in spots and we can improve the situation far more, including affirmative action programs, which as I've said before, I am certainly not opposed to either the private or the public sector.
6: Mr. Atman,
3: thank you so much. Two minutes,
4: Dr. Ray. Yeah. So,
1: look, research documents that that hard work or or lack thereof, intellect, or, or criminality do not explain the outcomes when we talk about the racial wealth gap. Instead, unfortunately, it is that racism is deeply embedded within our social institutions, our policies, our rules, our regulations, our laws that segment people's experiences along racial lines. It's the same for gender. Women can achieve but have a much harder time doing so than men. If not, America would have had a woman vice president and a speaker of the house sitting behind a president long before 2021. Part of thinking about this is that what people seem to not realize is that being upwardly mobile does not negate encountering racist hurdles on the pathways to success. Our current system is set up for some people to have to jump over hurdles to succeed while others simply get to run to the finish line without experiencing those hurdles. Rather, it is about creating equitable pathways to success. This is what America says. It is an equitable democracy. That's part of what we call ourselves. And part of thinking about this equitable democracy is that people are pushing for America to reach its true ideals. Part of reaching our true ideals is that the only way this can properly occur is acknowledging that there are barriers As Professor Epstein said, systemic barriers that prevent us from getting there. Moreover, it is not that racial progress has not been made. It is that the United States has yet to make enough progress. In this regard, comments of certain people oftentimes become disappointing. Black people who succeed often walk on pins and needles because they realize that their success, and more so maintaining it, is precarious. As a result, some black people aim to make white people feel comfortable. Many of us are mostly socialized to do so. It is often a survival strategy for our lives during police encounters or economic survival in boardrooms. Some of us who succeed may experience survivor's remorse because we are some of the few that have made. But you know what? We actually embody the American dream and become the impersonal example to people who do not want to admit That systemic racism exists. We may even convince ourselves that racism is more prominent on the individual level than the institutional level.
3: But in closing, we
1: simultaneously represent racial progress, but are also most likely to be subjugated to racial discrimination because of the predominantly white spaces we are embedded within. We experience a chronic form of double
7: consciousness,
1: as W.B. Du Bois highlights, and admitting so can oftentimes lead to a slow death that we experience through the cumulative racial cuts and hurdles we encounter. The American dream being achievable for a few does not absolve the system and an imperfect union. Even when some of those successful people try to rationalize the racism
3: we can do better
1: as a nation. We must do better. Let's get past this open wound. Let's heal. And the best way to
4: do it is through reparations. Mr. Lane, thank you so much in our last minute. It is nice now time for our audience to take the closing poll on tonight's debate. If you're logged in to the U of H live stream site, please take a moment right now to indicate your opinion. We know we did uh, at, the poll at the beginning. Now this is the, uh, the closing poll. After hearing tonight's debate on whether you think the U.S. government should pay reparations for slavery and racism against the Black community, the closing poll you'll see there states, having listened to the debate, do you think the U.S. government should support some policy of reparations for Black Americans? Yes or no? Please go ahead and vote on uh, the closing poll. Now, while we are waiting on the results to and come in, I'd like to thank both of our speakers here for this very civil and informative um, debate on such a an important issue and an important topic that we've been talking about for years and I hope we will continue to talk about. I also like to thank the Gilbert family for supporting this event. And also I'll encourage all of our viewers to please, please visit the Elizabeth D. Rockwell Center on Ethics and Leadership website for a recording of tonight's debate and other upcoming events. And of course tonight's debate will also be available on ABC13.com and also on our streaming and digital platform. All right, we're going to see if the poll results will come in. We know uh, before,
8: at the beginning, the pre-poll
4: results, we had uh, 74% of people believing in some kind of operation, 8% uh, voted no, and 15% were on both sides. Again, that was the pre-poll results, yes and four percent 10% no, and 15% Now we want to take a look here at our results and see if any hearts or minds have changed. Um, all right. Uh, so the, the results are in. We have uh, and this is to the question. Having listened to the oh, debate, do you think the U.S. Yes, like government should support some you know. policy of reparations and for it's Black it's Americans? Exactly yes sir, no. or no, according to the post poll results.
9: Not yes,
4: ninety-seven percent. I think there is no, a lot of I think, well, again, I think a lot of people are saying say yes to yes, the reparations program. Truth right. uh, is Thank you, gentlemen, so much for joining us here for this very great. Debate here. Uh, it is very uh, thought provoking, <laughs> and uh, I wish you well and in your career. You all to talk on the subject. Exactly. Thank you all so it's much for joining us here for this debate for ABC 13 oh. and the Hobby Central. Okay. <laughs> I'm Sean <laughs> Siegel. Have a it's great to Okay. like a cocktail that you wear to dinner at a regular restaurant. Designers and the models are going down to the runway right now.
10: All right,
7: everyone. So,
11: committee on the Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties will come to order. Thank the officers for their help in clearing getting the door shut and getting folks in. Thank you so much. Without objection, the chair will authorize to declare a recess of the subcommittee at any time. I welcome everyone to today's hearing on H.R. 40 and the path to restorative justice. I will now recognize myself for an opening statement. Today is Juneteenth, a day that commemorates the announcement of the abolition of slavery in Texas and more generally throughout the former Confederacy on June 19, 1865. The news of the Emancipation of Proclamation did not reach Texas for two years, and so it was not until 1865 that all enslaved people knew they were free, despite President Lincoln's emancipation announcement. Slavery was a crime against humanity, one which, whose impacts we as a society continue to grapple with today. This year also marks the 400th anniversary of the first African slaves being brought to America. Slavery was our nation's original sin. Our Constitution protected it, embodied it in various compromises that gave disproportionate power to slave states. For example, the three-fifths clause counted slave as three-fifths of a person for population counts. Of course, they weren't considered persons, but property. But that, in turn, gave disproportionate representation to slave states in the House of Representatives. The Constitution also created the Electoral College, a system of electing the President of the United States that gave slave states another avenue to exercise disproportionate influence over national affairs. It is only fitting, then, that we should hold a hearing today on H.R. 40, the Commission to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. My colleague, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, who is in another hearing right now, she's here with us, thank you. A member of the subcommittee is the current lead sponsor of this legislation, and I'm proud to be a co-sponsor with her, along with full committee chair, Jerry Nadler, also a longtime co-sponsor of this bill. But the greatest credit for H.R. 40 belongs to two individuals. First and foremost, Mr. John Conyers. Kyners is a former colleague, a former chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, a great American and a great leader, one of my mentors, one of the reasons that I have introduced this resolution with him since 2007. He introduced it first 30 years ago, and he reintroduced it every Congress thereafter until his retirement. The second individual most responsible for H.R. 40 is sadly, but in reality, John Wilkes Booth. His assassination of President Abraham Lincoln led to Andrew Johnson becoming president, and President Johnson effectively rescinded the promise made by General William T. Sherman to former slaves that they would each be guaranteed 40 acres of land to make a living as a free person, promise sometimes colloquially referred to as 40 acres and a mule. President Lincoln would have carried that out and had plans to do it, but because of that dastardly day indeed of April 12th of 1865. It didn't occur. April, was it was April 14, maybe. Anyway, H.R. 40 would create, a commission, would create a commission to study the history of slavery in America, the role of the federal and state governments in supporting slavery and racial discrimination, other forms of discrimination against the descendants of slaves, and the lingering consequences of slavery and Jim Crow on African-Americans. The Commission will also make recommendations as to appropriate ways to educate the American public about its findings and appropriate remedies in light of its findings. An honest reckoning with the federal government's role in protecting the institution of slavery has been a leading priority of my congressional career. In 2007, my freshman year, less than two months into that term, I introduced H. Res. 194 an apology by the House of Representatives for its role in perpetuating both slavery and its noxious offspring, Jim Crow. The House ultimately passed this resolution by voice vote, and I once again thank Chairman Conyers for getting it a vote and getting it to the American people. As I noted in my resolution then, it was not just slavery itself that was wrong, but also, quote, the visceral racism against persons of African descent upon which, unquote, American slavery depended, a racism that went on to become entrenched in the nation's social fabric an evil that we must continue to confront today. Can we get that door closed? Okay. Thank you, sir. My resolution emphasized that while slavery was our nation's original sin, the underlying sin of anti-black racism did not end with the Civil War and the 13th Amendment, And Congress's inaction and acquiescence in the face of such racism was a big reason why. Racism became only further entrenched after slavery's end, as reflected in societal attitudes and in Jim Crow laws, a system of state racial segregation laws that created separate and unequal societies for whites and African Americans, one that was enforced through both official means and through lynchings, violence, intimidation, and disenfranchisement. And not until 100 years after the end of slavery did Congress, under Pressure from Dr. Martin Luther King, John Lewis, and other great civil rights leaders in the civil rights movement finally carry out its duty to end Jim Crow by passing the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that still exists to some extent, and other core civil rights statutes better fulfilling the Constitution's guarantees of equal protection for all. Today our nation continues to struggle with the legacy of the anti-black racism and undergirded slavery and Jim Crow. We see this in statistics that paint a bleak picture. According to the Census Bureau, 21.2% of African Americans lived in poverty in 2017 compared to 8.7% of non-Hispanic whites who live in poverty. That's over two times as many. The Census Bureau also reported in 2015 that the net worth of African American households was only about $13,000 which was less than 10%, less than 10% of the nearly $140,000 net worth of non-Hispanic white households. Limited access to wealth, building resources, and opportunities have led to this stark disparity. For instance, African Americans continue to face discrimination in the workplace. They have limited access to educational opportunities, according to the National Education Association. The high school education rate, graduation rate for African Americans was 67% compared to the nationwide average of 81%. African Americans also continue to face racial segregation in housing and discrimination and the availability of quality health care service and most other major facets of life. Enacting HR 40 would be an important step in finding effective long-term solutions to these problems, ones that can trace their origins to our nation's shameful history of slavery and anti-black racism. As the distinguished Professor Charles Ogletree of Harvard Law School once noted, the concept of reparations does not necessarily mean payments to individuals but rather a focus on the poorest of the poor, including efforts, quote, to address comprehensively the problems of those who have not substantially benefited from integration or affirmative action, unquote. I hope our hearing today can lead to fruitful conversations with the aim of achieving that goal. I thank our witnesses for being here today and look forward to their testimony. It is now my pleasure to recognize the ranking member of the subcommittee, the gentleman from Louisiana, Mr. Johnson, for his opening statement. Mr. Johnson.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me start today by saying I maintain the utmost respect for my colleagues on the other side and I know their beliefs on this issue are sincerely held. I, I want to thank all our witnesses for being here today, for your good faith testimony and your scholarship. We've all read through it in detail and made many notes. I- I'll use my brief time here to just focus on an overview of what H.R. 40 is and why we're here. W- what we're going to discuss here today centers upon a regrettable and shameful portion of American history slavery in America and elsewhere was a horrific injustice, the perpetuation of which was antithetically opposed to the founding ideals expressed in our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, including its Bill of Rights. Of course, the evil institution of slavery was legally abolished over 150 years ago on December 6, 1865, via ratification of the 13th Amendment, following the end of the tragic Civil War. The bill today, H.R. 40, would, quote, establish a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African-Americans. There are serious questions about this from from all sides of the political spectrum, and they're honest and sincere questions that we want to address. But putting aside the injustice of monetary reparations from current taxpayers for the sins of a small subset of Americans from many generations ago, let me finish. The fair distribution of reparations would be nearly impossible once one considers the complexity of the American struggle to abolish slavery. Just consider this, okay? There there are tens of millions of today's non-African Americans who are descended from people who arrived in the country, of course, after slavery ended. and, And therefore, they can't be held responsible for its legacy. More tens of millions are descended from people in both the North and South who didn't own slaves or who were descended from white people who fought in the Civil War, on the Union side. Indeed, only a small percentage of the total American population were slave owners. For the aforementioned reasons and many others, such an approach has been widely unpopular, at least in our recent history. In the 1970s, civil rights organizations openly rejected the idea of reparations, which the NAACP's assistant director himself called, quote, an illogical, diversionary, and paltry way out for guilt-ridden whites, unquote. Bayard Rustin, who organized the 1963 March on Washington and was one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s closest advisors, described the concept as, quote, a ridiculous idea, unquote. Barack Obama opposed reparations when he ran for president in 2008, and Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders did as well eight years later. In addition to all this, here in the Judiciary Committee, we have an obligation to acknowledge that any monetary reparations that might be recommended by the commission created by H.R. 40 would almost certainly be unconstitutional on their face. The reason for that, listen, wait a minute, the, the reason for that is a legal question. See, the legal question is the federal government can't constitutionally provide compensation today to a specific racial group because other members of that group, maybe several generations ago, were discriminated against and treated inhumanely. According to the U.S. Supreme Court, they would refer to that as an unconstitutional racial preference. See, the holding of the 1995 case, Richmond v. G.A. Cross and Company, is that racial set-asides and other entitlements are only permission, constitutionally permissible to remedy the present effects of the government's own widespread and recent discrimination. And the federal government is not allowed to provide race-based remedies that are, quote, ageless in their reach into the past and timeless in their ability to affect the future, unquote. Now, listen, I, I get it. I've read the scholarship. I know that, that some proponents of this legislation believe that the very discussion of reparations itself would be cathartic for our nation. But but, but. We have to ask if if discussions can result in justice today. They certainly probably won't provide consensus. Instead, many people of good conscience believe they'll distract from the many persistent causes of current racial disparities. They certainly exist. The despicable racism of America's past is part of that, as Mr. Coates, for example, has documented in a very compelling way. But so are other social and cultural dynamics, which are themselves often negatively influenced by well-intended government policies. Let us be clear today. Racism violates the most fundamental principles of our great nation, and it breaks the heart of our just and loving God. The central idea of America, what has been called as our foundational creed, is that we boldly declare the self-evident truth that all men are created equal, and that we are thus endowed by our Creator with the same inalienable rights. Because each of us is made in the image of God. Every single person has an estimable dignity and value, and our value is not related in any way to the color of our skin, what neighborhood we live in, our intelligence, or our abilities. Our value is inherent because it is given to us by our Creator. Many of my colleagues in this committee may not be aware that in addition to our four children still at home, my wife Kelly and I actually have a much older son who happens to be African American. We took custody of Michael and made him part of our family 22 years ago when we were just newlyweds, and Michael was just 14 and out on the streets and nowhere to go and on a very dangerous path. Michael's grown now. He has his own young family. He turns 36 years old next week, and he's a loving dad to four precious children of his own. God's been good to us, and he's a success story. I mention that today for one reason. I personally know the challenge that he has faced early in his life. I have walked with him through discrimination that he's had to endure over the years and the hurdles he's sometimes faced. I know all this, but God was, I was with him. I asked Michael this weekend what he thinks about the idea of reparations. In a very thoughtful way, he explained his opposition. And it reminded me of something that Harvard history professor Stephen Thernstrom has previously testified in this very committee. And he said this quote as I'm wrapping up. Finally, I would urge the members of this sub- subcommittee and the House of Representatives as a whole to ponder carefully the message that will be conveyed by the passage of this bill, HR 40. When you are behind in a foot race, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said in 1963, the only way to get ahead is to run faster than the man in front of you so when your white roommate says he's tired and goes to sleep you stay up and burn the midnight oil dr king's words reflect an important tradition of self-reliance i'm still quoting that has had eloquent advocates in the african-american community frederick Douglass, booker t washington w e b Bois, and many others all of them were saying in their different ways that african americans were not powerless to better their lives until america owned up to its historical sins and offered them a generous financial settlement the point is as important today as ever. That's what he wrote to this committee the last time or one of the last times this was debated. Those great leaders encourage people to take control of and responsibility for their own lives because that gives every human being a greater sense of meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. And I know everybody in this room probably agrees with that idea, that principle. The premise of H.R. 40 and similar legislation, however well intended they may be, risks communicating the opposite message. Would it propagate a worldview that says external forces from a century and a half ago, are directing the fate of black Americans today? I mean, it's an honest question some people ask. I, I, I think people who wholeheartedly agree that our nation is still in the process of healing from its reprehensible sins of the past can ask that question. There's no doubt that prejudice exists in our society, just as it has in every society since the fall of man in the garden. It exists in many communities, and between many different races and types of people, sadly, and it is not reserved to just one race, or class, or ethnicity against another. We all know that. All of it is despicable and every single instance of it is un-American. The question, the honest question we have today, and that's what we're here to discuss, is what do we do do about it? Uh, All of us are here to listen to the thoughtful discussion today. I hope we'll do it respectfully and with civility. We approach it in good faith. I promise you, every member of Congress does. And I look forward to hearing from all of our witnesses. Thank you again. I yield back.
11: Thank you, Mr. Johnson. And I want to apologize. I might have. We're not supposed to, in the audience, Respond or speak out or applaud or cheer and I'm probably wrong for having encouraged and allowed What I think was a proper reverence for mr. Conyers, but if you'd not allow my error to be compounded Try to keep cool and I now like to recognize the chairman of the full committee. Mr. Nadler
9: Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman for calling this important hearing this year We mark the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans arriving at the colony of Jamestown, Virginia Today's hearing on H.R. 40 and the path to restorative justice gives us the opportunity to reflect on the shameful legacy of slavery and Jim Crow in this country and to examine how we can best move forward as a nation. For nearly three decades, the former chairman of the Judiciary Committee, John Conyers of Michigan, introduced H.R. 40, which would establish a commission to study reparations proposals for African-Americans. Our colleague, the gentleman, the gentlewoman from Texas, Ms. Jackson Lee, has taken up sponsorship of this legislation and I am pleased to be a co-sponsor, as I was a co-sponsor for many years when it was sponsored by Mr. Conyers. H.R. 40 is intended to begin a national conversation about how to confront the brutal mistreatment of African Americans during chattel slavery, Jim Crow segregation, and the enduring structural racism that remains endemic to our society today. Even long after slavery was abolished, segregation and subjugation of African-Americans was a defining part of this nation's policies that shaped its values and its institutions. Today, we live with racial disparities in access to education, health care, housing, insurance, employment, and other social goods that are directly attributable to the damaging legacy of slavery and government-sponsored racial discrimination in this century following slavery's end. It is important to recognize that H.R. 40 makes no conclusion about how to properly atone for and and make recompense for the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and their lingering consequences. Instead, it sets forth a process by which a diverse group of experts and stakeholders can study the complex issues involved and make recommendations to us. Most serious reparations models that have been proposed to date have focused on restorative community-based programs of employment, healthcare, care, housing, and education initiatives, righting wrongs that cannot be fixed with checks alone. This moment of national reckoning comes at a time when our nation must find constructive ways to confront a rising tide of racial and ethnic division. In April, this committee held a hearing on hate crimes and the rise of white nationalism in order to begin framing a federal response. Hate crimes white supremacy, the legacy of slavery, the legacy of Jim Crow, all hold back our country's longstanding efforts to carry out what the preamble to our Constitution says it is designed to do to form a more perfect union. Reparations in the context of H.R. 40 are ultimately about respect and reconciliation, and the hope that one day all Americans can walk together toward a more just future. I hope that the commission established by H.R. 40 and help us better comprehend our own history and bring us closer to racial understanding and advancement and justice. Today's hearing gives the subcommittee an important opportunity to hear from witnesses directly involved in shaping the discourse on healing our society and creating a path to restorative justice. I am pleased that we have such a distinguished panel of witnesses whose testimony will assist us greatly in understanding the scope of our our inquiry. The discussion of reparations is a journey in which the road traveled may be almost as important as the exact destination. I am pleased that the subcommittee is beginning this process today and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. I yield back the balance of my time.
11: Thank you, Mr. Nadler. Uh, I'd like to ask for unanimous consent that uh, Ms. Representative Karen Bass be allowed to sit on the dais. She's a member of the committee, but not the subcommittee, without objection. Thank you. Welcome, Ms. Bass. Mr. Green was just here at, uh, from Houston. I think he's coming back. And now I'd like to recognize the gentlelady from Texas for an opening statement, Ms.
2: Sheila Jackson-Lee. Chairman, thank you very much, and thank you to uh, Chairman Nadler for uh, a uh, identity of H.R. 4 as a legitimate legislative action that should receive the full hearing of this committee, should in fact have a markup go to the floor of the House, go to the United States Senate, and be signed by the President of the United States of America. This is a action of legislative commitment, and this is not a symbolic action, though I am gratified that we are having this hearing on Juneteenth. And for those of us who understand Juneteenth, two years after the proclamation, Emancipation Proclamation, there were those Africans who did not have freedom until 1865. So let me begin and indicate to my friends who have expressed a variety of assessments of H.R. 40 and say that America is a place that welcomes the diversity of thought. We even welcome the diversity of thought among the multicolored chocolate people that are African Americans, descendants of African slaves. Let me be very clear. It is only this group, even though they attempted to enslave Native Americans, it is only this group that can singularly, singularly claim to have been slaves under the auspices, the institution, and leadership of the United States government. And so H.R. 40, is in fact, is in fact the response of the United States of America long overdue. Slavery is the original sin. Slavery has never received an apology. This commission will be comprised of members selected by the President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, the leader, and of course, those who've been entrenched in this process. I spoke to John Conyers yesterday. I'm honored to have been given the opportunity to lead this bill. John Conyers said to move on and to lead on, and for us to take this forward. Thank you, Congressman John Conyers, for all that you have done. So let me share with you just a sense of what we face. Let me first of all say the number of Africans who died in the Middle Passage, over two million number of enslaved who died during slavery first second and third generation over 2.5 million the transatlantic slave trade was the largest movement of people in history between 10 and 15 million africans were forcibly transported across the Atlantic between 1500 and 1900 at least two million africans 10 to 15 percent died in the infamous Middle passage as I said and another 15 to 30 percent died during the march to or confinement along the coast. Altogether, for every 100 slaves who reached the New World, another 40 died in Africa or doing. Movement of people in history. Between 10 and 15 million Africans were forcibly transported across the Atlantic between 1500 and 1900. At least 2 million Africans, 10 to 15 percent, died in the infamous Mental Passage, as I said. Another 15 to 30 percent died during the march to or confinement along the coast. Altogether, for every 100 slaves who reached the New World, another 40 died in Africa or during the Middle Passage. Who has a history like that? Reparations and the idea of this commission should be welcomed by all Americans. For we are not asking one American to give one payment. What we're saying is that the only way that slavery ended was a governmental action of the 13th Amendment, governmental action. And Reconstruction failed after 12 years because it was imploded by governmental people. And after Reconstruction, a reign of terror that had never been seen, the hanging fruit, the lynching, the oppression of voting, the tearing away of land, and the amazing concept of the continuing de jure and de facto impact of slavery today. One million African Americans are incarcerated. That is a continuing impact. The black employment rate is 6.6%, in spite of what has been said currently, more than double the national unemployment rate. 31% of black children live in poverty compared to 11% of white children. The natural average is 18%, which suggests that the percentage of black children living in poverty is more than 150%. Even in spite of the glorious overcoming of the talent that is part of our community, the scrapping together of making sure our children received education, the putting together something out of nothing, we still have been impacted. And only 57% of black students have access to the full range of math and science classes Today. Black children were vaccinated at rates lower than white children. Education mobility has been limited. Black children represent 19% of the nation's preschool population, yet 47% of those receiving more than one out-of-school suspension. Black students are 2.3 times as likely to receive a referral to law enforcement. And we know the criminal justice system. So I conclude by these words. Black people in America are the descendants of Africans kidnapped and transported to the United States with the explicit complicity of the U.S. government and every arm of the United States' lawmaking and law enforcement infrastructure. The dehumanizing and atrocities of slavery were not isolated occurrences, but mandated by federal laws that were codified and enshrined in the Constitution. The role of the federal government in supporting the institution of slavery and subsequent discrimination directed against blacks is an injustice that must be formally acknowledged and addressed. I am not here in anger or anguish. I am not in any way seeking to encourage hostilities. There are diverse opinions in this room, and I understand it, appreciate it, respect it, admire it, and love it. I'm a product of my history. I am clearly a child that has walked this path. No, I did not pick cotton. But I will say that those who picked cotton created the very basic wealth of this nation. For cotton was king. There was no other product. And so I ask my fellow colleagues that this is simply a constructive discussion that will lead to the practical responses. And if I might, Mr. Chairman, put this article in the record from the New York Times, uh, dated June 17th, downtown boom, Kansas City, Missouri, and just a few blocks away, devastation in the black community. Two cities, mostly in every area, I ask unanimous consent, Mr. Chairman.
11: Without objection.
2: Two cities. I also ask unanimous consent to put a statement of support from John Legend.
11: Without objection.
2: Two cities, Mr. Chairman. And so let me just conclude by saying I hope that we come in peace, I know that we'll hear from Senator Booker. I thank him. And I thank a number of others who have done this, including the heads of state, scholars, and activists in the Caribbean, are playing a leading role in the global reparation movement. Many have been inspired by our work. I'm delighted to see that Professor Sir Hilary Beckles, Vice Chancellor of the University of West Indies and Chairman of Caricom Reparations Commission, has traveled all the way from Jamaica to be here. I, thank you. I am particularly glad that we're we're coming together as brothers and sisters and passing out accolades. I want to certainly acknowledge INCOBRA for its steadfast leadership on this issue over the years and playing an instrumental role in garnering sponsors of H.R. 40. We're also delighted that several members of the National African American Reparations Commission are present. I want to thank them for working closely with the dean, Congressman John Conyers, in reforming H.R. 40 into a bill to study reparations. I'm delighted to have reintroduced it with its modification, and carrying it forward to its next level. Thank you, Dr. Ron Daniels. We thank you for your leadership. Look forward to working with you in the National African American Reparations Commission as we educate the nation on the importance of enacting H.R. 40. And I'd like to thank Reverend Al Sharpton, National Action Network's convention, uh, because he asked 15 presidential candidates uh, what their position was, and we now have raised this to a national level. I just simply ask, why not? And why not now? If not all of us, then who? God bless us as we pursue the final justice for those who lived in slavery for 250 years in the United States of America. Please support H.R. 40 to its passage and signature by the President of the United States. Mr. Chairman, thank you for your generosity and kindness. I yield back.
11: Thank you, Ms. Lee. Uh, I'd also like to ask that H.R.S. 194, which was an apology for slavery that the House passed in the 110th Congress, uh, a resolution apologizing for the enslavement and racial segregation of African Americans be uh, introduced. Um, and for the record, without objection, should be done. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. And I would, yes ma'am.
2: just want to, you did acknowledge uh, Ms. Bass. I just want to indicate that Ms. Bass is the chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus and we're delighted that she's here. Uh, in many roles, but we thank her for being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for yielding.
11: H.Res. 194 was intended to start this dialogue and have a national dialogue. Unfortunately, the Senate did pass an apology, but Mr. Brownback included a sentence that said it would have no effect upon reparations. Despite Mr. Hillary Shelton and Wade Henderson's insistence that it should still pass together and we could have a dialogue, we passed different resolutions, but the Senate did pass an apology as well. In the, I think it was 111th Congress, and that was because of the good work of Mr. Senator Tom Harkin. I would like to introduce to the record the testimony from William Darity Jr., a professor of public policy, African and uh, African American studies, and economics at Duke University. Without objection, so done. And now I would like to come to the first panel, uh, and we'd like to welcome as our to the first panel Senator Cory Booker. Senator Booker, uh, your written statement will be entered into the record. I uh, ask you to summarize your statement to five minutes. Ms. Senator Booker represents the state of New Jersey in the United States Senate. October 16, 2013, he won a special election, and on November 4, 2014, he was re-elected to a full six-year term. He sits on the Senate Judiciary, Foreign Relations, Small Business and intrapreneur- Entrepreneurship, and the Environment and the Public Works Committees. He is the sponsor of S-1083, the Senate companion to H.R. 40. He received his J.D. from Yale Law School and his undergraduate degree from Stanford University, where they also play football. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, earning an honors degree in history. Senator Booker, welcome, and you're recognized for five minutes.
12: Thank you very much, uh, uh, Chairman Nadler, Chairman Cohen, Ranking Member Collins, and Ranking Member Johnson. I'm glad that my written... uh, testimony will be put into the record. I just want to say that I'm sitting before you on many days that I uh, come down to Washington uh, brokenhearted and very angry. Uh, I live in a black and brown inner city community below the poverty line. I've lived and worked in communities like this all my adult life. And yesterday, uh, hundreds of yards from where I live, uh, there were seven black men shot. And this is an everyday occurrence in America. I have uh, the the privilege of having leaders in my community who, over the decades, have given me strength. One of them was a woman who lived on the fifth floor of the projects, our tenant president, in some buildings in which I lived, whose son was murdered as well in our community. And she taught me that hope is the active conviction, that despair won't have the last word. But on a day like this, when I come back to Washington, D.C., seven people shot in my community, I wonder if other senators had people shot like that in their neighborhood, whether that wouldn't be a lead national story. But I see the lives of low-income folks, the lives of black and brown folks, uh, when people are shot and killed, the world seems to keep going on. And so I wonder about having the last word. What happens when the last word is no words, when it's silence? And I feel a sense of anger where we are in the United States of America, where we have not had direct conversations about a lot of the root causes of the inequities and the pain and the hurt manifested in economic disparities, manifested in health disparities, manifested in a a criminal justice system that is indeed a form of new Jim Crow. And so we as a nation have not yet truly acknowledged and grappled with racism, and white supremacy that has tainted this country's founding and continues to persist in those deep racial disparities and inequalities today. This is a very important hearing. It is historic. It is urgent. I look at communities like mine, and you could literally see how communities were designed to be segregated, designed uh, based upon uh, enforcing institutional uh, racism and inequities. We know that racialized violence and terrorism has persisted from reconstruction well into the 1950s, as my friend Brian Stevenson's National Memorial for Peace and Justice shows. We've seen bombings of churches. We've seen massacres at places as recently as the Emanuel AME Church just four years ago. The stain of slavery was not just inked in bloodshed, but in the overt state-sponsored policies that fueled white supremacy and racism and have disadvantaged African Americans economically for generations. Many of the bedrock policies, in fact, that ushered generations of Americans into the middle class were designed to exclude African Americans from the GI Bill to Social Security, intentionally designed to exclude blacks, as was school segregation, redlining, neighborhoods like the one in which I live, which were by design walled off and disinvested in. And while these policies of the past, uh, uh, their damage and their reality has endured across generations and have created and led to so much of the racial wealth gaps uh, in our country. Right now we see cities like Boston where the average white family has somewhere around $240,000 in wealth and the average black family has about $8 in wealth. Health outcomes also vary widely by by race. National black women are nearly four times as likely to die from pregnancy complications as white women and in so many other areas. Our criminal justice system as well. No difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or selling drugs, but African Americans are about four times more likely to be arrested. These injustices do not just cause injustice for African Americans It enforces a deep injustice in our nation as a whole. It is a cancer on the soul of our country and hurts the whole body politic, making us all less wealthy, making us all less just, making us all fall far short from being who we say we are when we swear an oath that this will be a nation of liberty and justice for all. I believe this is an urgent moment, and this bill, which I am now leading on the Senate side, is the beginning of an important process, not just to examine and study this history that has not been addressed, the silence that persists, but also to find practical ideas to address the enduring injustices in our nation. The characterizations of such an effort that I hear from others is wrong and undermines our collective purpose and common ground. This idea that it's just about writing a check from one American to another falls far short of the importance of this conversation and what I believe we will truly talk about. I say that I am brokenhearted and angry right now. Decades of living in a community where you see how deeply unfair this nation is still to so many people who struggle, who work hard, who do everything right, but still find themselves disproportionately with lead in their water, super funds in their neighborhood, schools that don't serve their genius, health uh, uh, disparities that still affect their body and their well-being. We as a nation must address these persistent inequalities or we will never fully achieve the strength and the possibility Hope is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word. I believe right now today we have a historic opportunity to break the silence, to speak to the ugly past, and talk constructively about how we will move this nation forward. As the old African saying says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's about time we find the common ground and the common purpose to deal with the ugly past and make sure that generations ahead do not have to continue to mark disparities, but can truly talk about a nation whereas our ancestors spoke from the good book, where justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
11: Thank you so much, Senator Booker. I appreciate your testimony. Very heartfelt and well received. Uh, I also want to just reiterate that Congressman Al Green was here and uh, he's a great champion. Now I'd like to call upon our second panel and thank Senator Booker for his sponsorship and his statement and wonderful words. Thank you, sir. Second panel, if they'd come forward, I guess we need chairs. There we go. The chair crowd is here. Good. Okay, enough with the pictures. <laughs> and if Hope Hicks hearing, hearing, well, that's neither here nor there. We welcome our witnesses and thank them for participating in today's hearing. Your written statement will be entered into the record in its entirety, and I ask you to summarize your testimony in five minutes. There's a lighting system. Green means you're on. Blue means you've got, no, yellow means you've got a minute left. And red, you're over. Cut. Finished. Before proceeding, I remind each witness that your written and oral statements made to the subcommittee in connection with this hearing are subject to penalties of perjury pursuant to 18 U.S.C. 1001, which may result in the imposition of a fine or imprisonment of up to five years. Our first witness is Tanahashi Coates. If I mispronounced it, I'm sorry. Chris Hayes didn't teach me well when we first met. Mr. Coates is an author and distinguished writer in residence at the New York University Carter Journalism Institute, a position he's held since 2017 a variety of academic positions since 2010. Additionally, from 2008 to 2018, he was a national correspondent for The Atlantic, where he wrote an extensive piece in June 2014 on the case for reparations. I believe he also addressed Rhodes College on that subject sometime in Memphis, Tennessee. He's the author of three books, numerous articles, and blog posts. Mr. Coates, thank you for being here, and you're recognized for five minutes.
7: Yesterday, When asked about reparations, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell offered a familiar reply. America should not be held liable for something that happened 150 years ago, since none of us currently alive are responsible. This rebuttal proffers a strange theory of governance, that American accounts are somehow bound by the lifetime of its generations. But well into this century, the United States was still paying our pensions to the heirs of Civil War soldiers. We honor treaties that date back some 200 years, despite no one being alive, who signed those treaties. Many of us would love to be taxed for the things we are solely and individually responsible for. But we are American citizens and thus bound to a collective enterprise that extends beyond our individual and personal reach. It would seem ridiculous to dispute invocations of the founders or the greatest generation on the basis of a lack of membership in either group. We recognize our lineage as a generational trust, as inheritance. And the real dilemma posed by reparations is just that, a dilemma of inheritance. It is impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. As historian Ed Baptist has written, enslavement quote, shaped every crucial aspect of the economy and politics of America, so that by eighteen thirty six, more than six hundred million, or almost half of the economic activity in the United States derived directly or indirectly from the cotton produced by the millionard slaves. By the time the enslaved were emancipated, they comprised the largest single asset in America, three billion in eighteen sixty dollars, more than all the other assets in the country combined. The method of cultivating this asset was neither gentle cajoling nor persuasion, but torture, rape, and child trafficking. Enslavement reigned for 250 years on these shores. When it ended, this country could have extended its hollowed principles, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to all regardless of color. But America had other principles in mind. And so for a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. It is tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder, from enslavement. But the logic of enslavement, of white supremacy, respects no such borders. And the god of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs, coup d'etat's and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for Appomattox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodward. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation yesterday, as well he should, because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. I am sure they'd love a word with the Majority Leader. What they know what this committee must know is that while emancipation deadbolted the door against the bandits of America, Jim Crow wedged the windows wide open. And that is the thing about Senator McConnell's something. It was 150 years ago, and it was right now. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. The matter of reparations is one of making amends and direct redress, but it is also a question of citizenship. In H.R. 40, this body has a chance to both make good on its 2009 apology for enslavement and reject fair-weather patriotism. To say that a nation is both its credits and its debits. That if Thomas Jefferson matters, so does Sally Hemings. That if D-Day matters, so does Black Wall Street. That if Valley Forge matters, so does Fort Pillow. Because the question really is not whether we will be tied to the somethings of our past, but whether we are courageous enough to be tied to the whole of them. Thank you.
11: Thank you, Mr. Coates. Next witness is Mr. Danny Glover, actor, producer, and an activist for various causes. He's currently Goodwill Ambassador for UNICEF, Chairman of the Board of TransAfrica Forum, an African-American lobbying organization for Africa and the Caribbean, and a friend of Harry Belafonte. You're recognized for five minutes.
5: Thank you, Mr. Coates. It's not often that you hear the words of a young man, and they enliven your emotional memory, your historic memory, as he just did at this moment. Thank you so much. I am deeply honored to be here today, offering my testimony at this historic meeting about the reckoning of a crime against humanity that is foundational to the development of democracy and material well-being in this country. A national reparations policy is a moral, democratic, and economic imperative. I sit here as the great-grandson of a former slave, Mary Brown, who was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863 i had the fortune of meeting her as a small child i also sit here as the grandson of Reese may huntley and rufus mack huntley my maternal grandparents who were both born before plessy versus ferguson supreme court decision in 1896. And for a significant portion of their lives, they worked as sharecroppers and tenant farmers in rural Georgia until they were able to save enough money to purchase a small farm. They were subsistence farmers. Despite much progress over the centuries, this hearing is yet another important step in the long and heroic struggle of African-Americans to secure reparations for the damages inflicted by enslavement and post-emancipation and racial exclusionary policies. Many of the organizations who are present today at this hearing are amongst the historical contributors to the present national discourse, congressional deliberations and Democratic Party presidential campaign policy discussions about reparations. We are also indebted to the work of Congressman John Conyers for shepherding this legislation. The adoption of H.R. 40 can be a signature legislative achievement, especially within the context of the United Nations International Decade of People of African descent. We should also note that the Common Market Nations and the Caribbean Community, CARICOM, Reparations Commission chaired by Professor Sir Hilary Beckles, who is here with us today, has exercised a leadership role from which we as a nation can benefit. Our sustained direct Effective policy actions in full collaboration with African-Americans and progressive citizens allies is the ultimate proof of the sincerity of our national commitment to repair the damages of the legally and often religiously sanctioned inhumanity of slavery, segregation, and current structural racism that limit full democratic participation and material advancement of African-Americans and of our country's progress as a beacon of justice and equality. So I call on all of the elected public officials in Congress to demonstrate your commitment in action today and stand forth with Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee and co-sign Cosign HR 40. In closing, with the insightful and still, I'm, I close. Excuse me, with the insightful and still relevant words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, and I quote: "Why is the issue of equality still so far from solution in America, a nation which professes itself to be democratic, inventive?" hospitable to new ideas, rich, productive, and ultimately powerful. Justice for black people will not flow into society merely from court decisions, nor from fountains of political oratory, nor will a few token changes quell all the tempt- temptuous yearnings of millions of disadvantaged black people. White America must recognize that justice for black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. The comfortable, the entrenched, the privileged cannot continue to tremble at the prospect of change in the status quo. Thank you. Thank you.
11: Ms. Katrina Brown is our next witness. She's a freelance speaker, educator, and facilitator. She produced and directed the documentary film Traces of the Trade, A Story from the Deep North, which she made in response to her discovery that her Rhode Island ancestors were the largest slave trading family in the United States history. She also currently serves as a consultant for the Episcopal Church's initiatives on racial healing, justice, and reconciliation, authoring a 10 session race dialogue series for congregational use. And I must parenthetically say that we were doing our apology. The Episcopal Church beat us to it. They were leaders on that effort. She has an MA in Theology for the Pacific School of Religion where she wrote a thesis on film and civic dialogue, and you're recognized for five minutes.
6: Thank you, Chairman Cohen and Ranking Member Johnson and Representative Jackson Lee for the opportunity to speak this morning. I grew up in Philadelphia, six blocks from Independence Hall and in the Liberty Bell. I am a deep, so it was devastating to learn from my grandmother at age 28 that our ancestors had been slave traders, and to discover that the DeWolfs were in fact the largest slave trading family in United States history, bringing over 12,000 Africans to the Americas in chains. That these were my Rhode Island ancestors and that Rhode Island turns out to be the state that sent more ships to Africa than any other, required me to reorganize my brain. The amnesia in my family matched the larger amnesia of the North, the self-serving myths of being always on the right side of history. I could no longer carry a sense of moral superiority relative to white Southerners, nor a sense of innocence vis-a-vis the black claims These are the black claims on the white conscience. I decided to initiate a family journey to retrace the triangle trade. Nine relatives joined me, two of which are here today, and the documentary Traces of the Trade is the result, the subtitle being A Story from the Deep North. What we learned, how we stumbled, how we grew during that journey led me to become a passionate believer in the importance of reckoning with the history and legacy of slavery a believer in personal and family reckonings, institutional ones, and larger national reckoning, and with that, in the need for repair or reparative action, which can and should take many, many forms. I express wholehearted support for H.R. 40, and I've met countless people of all backgrounds who believe in this form of national effort as well. I know there are many who strenuously object to the premise that we need this reckoning. The pushback I hear most often is, that's your problem given your ancestors, but it has nothing to do with me. It's understandable that people distance themselves. I'll focus on two reasons. One, most of us learned a distorted history of slavery in school. So as white Americans, most of us don't realize our connection to it. Second, there's a natural instinct to avoid that which can bring feelings of shame about our people, about the country that we love. To address the first issue, here's a quick rundown of historical facts I had not been taught. That the North was deeply implicated, that slavery was legal in Northern states for over over 200 years, that Northerners up and down the economic spectrum made their livings and businesses tied to slave trade and slavery, that northern mills processed cotton harvested by enslaved people. The Midwest and the West were implicated. They grew food to feed the South, where land was devoted to cash crops like cotton harvested by the enslaved. Consumers throughout the country were implicated in their everyday purchases of clothing, coffee, sugar, rice, tobacco. People who immigrated from Europe after slavery were implicated. I have Irish, French, and German immigrant ancestors who came to the United States in the 19th century, worked in factories, struggled, but they were given access to the American dream. Why were waves of immigrants flocking here? Because it was the land of opportunity. Why was the economy booming? Why were there jobs? Because it had been built largely on unpaid labor. Once here, European immigrants got to systematically leapfrog over black families with devastating consequences up to the present day. So slavery built the nation. It's turning us into an economic powerhouse due mostly who, I must say, good folk who participated in mundane ways and looked the other way. Now for the second big reason for pushback against this bill, the emotions that it stirs up. And I'd speak directly to my fellow white Americans on this. First, fear not. Though it's counterintuitive, I've seen over and over again the liberating power of facing this painful past. Second, white people tend to imagine that black people are angry at us. But in my experience, black Americans don't blame us for the deeds of bygone ancestors, but are rightfully angry that we don't just drop the defensiveness or the self-absorbed guilt and sign up to work with them, shoulder to shoulder, to tackle the legacies that are still with us. Third, when we let go of defensiveness or guilt, we can get to a healthy and shared grief which opens the door to sober, sacred, respectful, creative, collective conversation about how to make things right. There are scores of organizations that are already able to attest to the power of this work. They know, I know, that the process that a commission would help the country embark upon could be a transformative, positive, and life-giving thing for the country as a whole, a beautiful thing, It is good for the soul of a person, a people, and of a nation to set things right. Thank you.
11: Thank you, Ms. Brown. And I I would note that the Capitol was built with slave labor. And because of the work of representatives Jesse Jackson, Jr. and Zach Womp, the uh, new visitor center is named Emancipation Hall in that recognition. Mr. Coleman Hughes is a columnist for Quillette has worked as a freelance opinion writer since January 2018. He's had pieces published in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The National Review, The City Journal, and The Spectator. He's studying philosophy at Columbia University, and we appreciate your attendance, and you're recognized for five minutes, sir.
8: Thank you, Chairman Cohen, Ranking Member Johnson, and members of the committee. It's an honor to testify on a topic as important as this one. Nothing I'm about to say is meant to minimize the horror and brutality of slavery and Jim Crow. Racism is a bloody stain on this country's history, and I consider our failure to pay reparations directly to freed slaves after the Civil War to be one of the greatest injustices ever perpetrated by the U.S. government. But I worry that our desire to fix the past compromises our ability to fix the present. Think about what we're doing today. We're spending our time debating a bill that mentions slavery 25 times, but incarceration only once, in an era with no black slaves, but nearly a million black prisoners. A bill that doesn't mention homicide once, at a time when the Center for Disease Control reports homicide as the number one cause of death for young black men. I'm not saying that acknowledging history doesn't matter. It does. I'm saying there's a difference between acknowledging history and allowing history to distract us from the problems we face today. In 2008, the House of Representatives formally apologized for slavery and Jim Crow. In 2009, the Senate did the same. Black people don't need another apology. We need safer neighborhoods and better schools. We need a less punitive criminal justice system. We need affordable health care. And none of these things can be achieved through reparations for slavery. Nearly everyone close to me, nearly everyone close to me told me not to testify today. They told me that even though I've only ever voted for Democrats, I'd be perceived as a Republican and therefore hated by half the country. Others told me that by distancing myself from Republicans, I would end up angering the other half of the country. And the sad truth is that they were both right. That's how suspicious we've become of one another. That's how divided we are as a nation. If we were to pay reparations today, we would only divide the country further, making it harder to build the political coalitions required to solve the problems facing black people today. We would insult